0: guys today in episode 14 of great health does not have to be a mission impossible we're going to talk about food allergies and food sensitivities there actually is a difference between the two and then what should you possibly consider uh, if these are going on should you be tested should you avoid it how does that work so let's talk about at least food sensitivity versus food allergy so you have to understand that there are different types of of antibodies that go on in the body. So when an IgA comes around, IgA is an antibody that's from the tip of your tongue to the end of your anus. It is particularly uh, subjugated to only being in the intestinal tract, such as the mucous tissue, the gut, the nasal uh, cavity, the mouth, and the lungs. And IgA is involved in food sensitivity. It is not involved in food allergies. So if you have a test, um, whether it's at a medical doctor or a functional medicine doctor, again, these are things that most doctors just don't understand the difference between the two of them. I'm not trying to be mean about it. It's just that many doctors, it doesn't matter what where they came from, never sat down for an entire year learning about lab tests, an entire year of clinical laboratory science, which means this is the best test for this and this is the best test for that. Well, Dr. Trites did. Um, and I'm not trying to be mean to anybody, but we see a lot of allergies that come in and they're like, oh, oh well, this is this particular allergy. I have an allergy to this. And I'm like, but that's not an allergy test. That's a sensitivity test. There's a, there's a little bit of a difference and there's a different way to respond to it. So most doctors in the medical world run what's called food allergy testing. And the food allergy testing involves an IgE antibody test. It is an allergic reaction to it. It's anaphylactic. It's an immediate response. So if you know somebody who's eaten a peanut or a shrimp Something like that, and they immediately swell up or uh, can't breathe, an anaphylactic response that is an IgE antibody test. That is a food allergy. The rest of us have food sensitivities. So, IgA again goes into the gastrointestinal system. An antibody called IgG is part of the memory of the immune response, so it remembers and it can remember up to a year. And then IgM is the earliest antibody response. So IgM will come up first and then IgG hangs around. Um, So I don't, in our office, find it clinically relevant to take a look at IgM because they just ate it and if they just ate it and they had a reaction to it, they probably should have an IgE test to check for a food allergy and immediate sensitivity and or anaphylaxis. So I just want to break those down for you so you, you get why we test a particular way in our office. What we check for in our office is IgA and IgG. Now, some doctors just check for IgA and they're only looking for gastrointestinal issues and or the lung and sinus cavity. There's a little bit more than that. So IgA and then you have the same one in IgG, meaning it's going through the body. Now you're getting inflammation in other places. So when I run a basic screen on literally everybody that walks in the door, I run an IgG to gluten because you're going to have an IgA to gluten. But I want to know if you have an IgG that's actually gone through the blood or the, the gut barrier system and it's actually hanging out in your bloodstream. Uh, does that make sense? Hopefully it does. So IgG is a more... Um, more inflammatory so if you stay away from foods that have just an iga for one to three months they're going to go away but it might take you up to a year if it's igg now a food sensitivity you could eat something and you could have an immediately swelling or headache or itching um, within a few minutes of eating it food allergy uh, that's not a food allergy it's a food sensitivity or it could be up to three days later so understand that when we really do have to ask or break down uh, what are you eating? Really, I'm looking at what happened in the last three days. Now, the most common food allergies you've probably seen before, cow's milk, peanuts, tree nuts, like somebody can't have any walnuts or almonds or pecans or Brazil nuts, shellfish, other types of fish. I had a, had a, one of my closest friends growing up as a, a a young young man. Um he moved into our um, school. I think it was third grade. Immediately into my Cub Scouts and then Weeblos. and uh, he ended up. We we were camping and doing everything, and then our dads became friends, and so we would go spend usually two weeks in Canada every year fishing. Now, this particular kid could not touch. He couldn't eat fish. He could touch a fish and go fishing, catch it and touch it, but for dinner, if we were going to eat fish, he couldn't touch the couldn't touch the flesh. Otherwise, he had to pull out his pen. So he couldn't be around. When we started cleaning fish or doing anything, he, he had to disappear. And so he had to have his own food. He had to eat in his own way. Um, he had a fish uh, flesh anaphylactic issue. But other people have soy issues or egg issues or wheat issues. So in the case of a celiac patient, they get around wheat. Um, and, and if they get exposure to that, the celiac flare can go up to one year for one exposure so those are what's considered the most common food allergies and where we're actually going somebody had let's say, let's say they had a po' boy and there's a potential for cow's milk and shellfish and uh egg and wheat and soy in that particular po' boy uh, we're going to run a food allergy test for ig on those things because it can't be exposed to those anywhere because it gets worse but for the rest of us, we use common food sensitivities. And gluten and milk and egg all fall into that, as well as soy and then nightshade. So nightshades are tomatoes, eggplants, potatoes, and peppers, or lectins, uh, which are beans, lentils, and nightshades. Now, uh, shout out to Dr. Gundry because he started doing a lot of research on this and putting it out there and getting people off of these things. But not everybody needs to stay away from le- lectins, and not everybody needs to stay away from nightshades. So I, I'm going to disagree with him on that part, but he, he did a pretty good job of bringing— People are going to be making aware of them. Now, if you have a test for food sensitivity and it's not there, what is it doing to you? Nothing really. But you could have, for instance, let's say for fun, we ran an antibody test for IgG or IgA to Dr. Pepper. And I'm in Texas, so that's the cool thing to do down here is Dr. Pepper. But it's not there. Does that mean Dr. Pepper is healthy for you? No. It can still be inflammatory. It can still raise your blood sugar. It can still affect your insulin. So... There has to be a little common sense that goes along with it. So I know that nitrates are inflammatory, but if somebody's going to have one that doesn't have an, a food sensitivity to it, I'm not going to be as upset if, um, if I'm also watching their inflammatory markers and we're not seeing anything. Or let's say they do eat. Let's say they're like the salsa capital of the world, and, and they're making all this salsa, and they own a salsa company, and they have to test it every day because they're the, the head chef or sous chef or whatever you want to call it in uh, there. And they're testing stuff every day, but their inflammatory markers are there. They don't have any antibodies to this. And they have a good antibody count because you can run antibody tests and somebody has a low IgG or IgA. And we run those in every single panel that we go in because we want to make sure their antibody tests are normal. So if you have a normal amount, then I know that the test that we're getting doesn't have these things called false negatives and false positives that I'm sure none of you who knew anything about two years ago, but you're well aware of it now. And same with lectins. I mean, um, for endo days times, guess what I have for a lot of, um, energy source if I need to have them and protein. I I do have beans, uh, sitting around and, um, I do have rice sitting around, but we don't eat those on a daily basis or a regular basis. But, um, I'm not really worried about gluten-free or lectins if we're on survival mode. I, I just want you to know that. So there, there's a time and a place for that, but, uh, or let's say for whatever reason, um, I get, Disabled and I can't work or do anything, I have food to fall back on, and I understand that that's what our family can live off of. Not that it's the healthiest, but we have those options. But for most people who had food sensitivities, um, that can create that problem. Now, when it gets into food sensitivities, we have other things. So you get in what's called intestinal permeability, and we went through this in all the leaky gut. And then you have gluten that can get in there, and gluten can react. Now, gluten can react to all kinds of different tissues. Now, it can cross-react to different foods. Gluten can react with rye and barley and spelt and cow's milk and the actual protein in cow's milk called, or in dairy called casein. Or caseomorphin which makes you almost feel like you're on morphine when you're on it. You feel great. And then when you come off it, you have the withdrawal. Or it can be... Um, whey. So you're eating uh, whey protein, or you could have oats, even the gluten-free oats, gluten can cross-react to, or yeast or coffee. And so these are all the different things that gluten can do as a cross-reactant, and you could create an antibody to it, and then you don't eat gluten anymore, and you eat all the things I just spoke of, and you still have a reactivity to gluten, even though you're not eating gluten, because it's called cross-reaction. That is annoying, but it happens, and it happens about 20% of the time. So if somebody has a gluten positivity, we try to get them to avoid everything that can be a cross-reactivity, cross especially if we see, let's say your gluten number, if we ran it, was 10. And then two months later, it was uh, an eight. And it was kind of hanging out there four months later. And we're like, there's cross-reactivity. And, and you know, you're not eating anything. Uh, as opposed to somebody who um, they had a, a 10. And then three months later, they're like at a two and you need to be below two. And then they go, you know what? Christmas is coming up. Let's go have a whole bunch of dairy. And they do. And then it comes back up just, and just dairy, and it comes back up to eight. Well, it's pretty easy. We don't have to run a a specified test. It's like, uh, dairy's your cross-reactant. Stay away from it. And it's inflammatory. uh, Stay away from it. Now, in the immune system, you might have heard of these things called transglutaminase 2, 3, and 6. And what's... uh, Particularly tested for celiac patients is transglutaminase two, and if you have a transglutaminase two, it's really how the body breaks down gluten and it. it really puts water in it and helps it to become water soluble so you can pass it through. And celiac patients have an antibody to transglutaminase two, but also on the autoimmune cross reactivity side, so it's cross-reactive food, but it also is cross-reactive autoimmune sites. You can get transglutaminase three. So a lot of kids that have a gluten sensitivity also get it transglutaminase three to their skin. That's eczema. Well, can go a little bit further with that? Because some people, every time they eat it, they get this massive brain fog that, that goes along, and that can be transglutaminase 6. This antibody goes to your brain, or worse. You can get GAD antibodies, and that um, can go to your um, how your brain fires, and you can get cerebellum antibodies, which is how your balance is. And so we check this in the office. There's actually a condition called gluten ataxia. So ataxia means you can't really walk straight. So let me give an example of ataxia. If you've ever had, um, and, and I, I go back to my... Um, biochemistry professor who, for whatever reason, I cannot believe the guy is still there teaching. He had to have been in his 70s when, when I went through chiropractic school, and so he has to be in his 90s now teaching. I just asked a recent graduate, hey, is this Dr. G still working there teaching biochemistry, wearing the same sweat sweaters? Now, he had the sweaters, if you remember the Huxtables from the 90s, uh, Cliff Huxtable, and uh, we won't throw out his name because he hasn't done some good things in his life, but Cliff Huxable, the actor, always had these wonderful colorful sweaters on that he came out in. Uh, this particular doctor came out on every single day, and he'd start his lecture. Well, last night you were out with you and your crummy friends drinking Mad Dog 2020. Every single lecture. And so if you did have a weekend like that, that you drank Mad Dog 2020, and you went for a walk uh, after you had too much of it, you would not be able to walk straight. That's what's called ataxia. Now, there are people who have conditions, Frederick's ataxia, cerebellar ataxia, they're neurological conditions where the nervous system breaks down and they can't walk. Um, That's where ataxia comes in. But you can have antibodies to gluten that goes to your brainstem, that goes to your GAD antibodies, that goes to your cerebellum, and it looks like you have ataxia. It looks like you're drunk. So we can have people in the office. um, Walk just fine. They walk uh, what we call what you might see at a sobriety checkpoint. We do some tests in the office for that and they're just fine. And maybe you have to have them come back in the afternoon, but they go eat their normal food and they eat gluten and they come back and I do it again and then they fail. It looks like they're drunk. That's gluten ataxia. Uh, or when you take three steps with your eyes closed and you can't step anymore. Um, the potential for gluten ataxia is very, very high. Uh, and then also gluten can go cross-react to the islet cells in your pancreas and then cause pancreatic insufficiencies whether it's exocrine exocrine pancreatic insufficiencies or worse the beginning of diabetes so when i suggest to people that you be very careful if not avoid gluten entirely there's a ridiculous amount of research that says you should uh, because it can act and mimic like dementia and alzheimer's and parkinson's it can act and mimic like uh, it's called um, or non-reactive, it's non-celiac-related gastrointestinal inflammation. And then here's the other kicker. Uh, About 70% of people that have a gluten sensitivity don't have any gastrointestinal complaints. But they got a whole bunch of other stuff. They have joint pain. They have uh, blood pressure issues. They have palpitations. They have thyroid issues. They have brain fog. Uh, they are other... other, Or eczema. They have many other symptoms that come along with it that aren't celiac. And none of them are like any worse than the other. They all suck. They all are detrimental to health. Then... Here's where it gets even more interesting. You can even have an infection that cross-reacts to any of these things. And I won't get into the details of that, but that's why I take somebody that, that knows testing and can decipher and, and go through these to make sure that you're not getting into something that is perpetually stimulating yourself into a cross-reactivity and keeping your inflammation going. Um, so as we start to lose our intestinal permeability, we start to lose what's called loss of self-tolerance. So you start making antibodies to yourself. So you can have... In the case of Hashimoto's, and if we're using a particular lab known as Quest, their reference range is 0 to 9, which means that we want to keep you under 9, or you have the potential for Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which means you're above 9, in which case you have to go have a um, possible biopsy, but definitely an ultrasound to to see if there's anything going on there, such as nodules. So as you start making antibodies, that's considered a loss of cell tolerance, but if it hasn't gone above 9, you're not really Hashimoto's. You have autoimmune hyphen T, but you don't have autoimmune disease because you don't have uh, tissue destruction. You don't have enough antibodies there to get the tissue destruction, and if we ran an ultrasound, you probably don't have any nodules, and nodules is tissue destruction. And this could be anywhere. So let's say you have rheumatoid arthritis um, factor or rheumatoid factor that's now come up because... um, You know, your joints are hurting and whatnot, and nightshades can can be a a, a part of that. But let's say the cutoff is 14 and you're at 13. Medically, you don't have a disease. Take a picture of your your joints and they're fine. That's autoimmune hyphen T, not autoimmune disease. But let's say it gets to 15 and now you can see the joints actually starting to have tissue destruction. That is when you officially have qualified for autoimmune disease. So there's a process to go through, and this is why we're talking about foods, because so many times foods are a trigger. And once you have one trigger, you're going to have another one. So maybe you could go out in your environment, and you can maybe you live next to a plant that puts pollution out. Maybe you build fires all the time. Maybe you, uh, you're a woodworker. Maybe you work in cars all the time, and they're solvents. And those things don't bother you. And you may say your 20s, 30s, and 40s, and all of a sudden they're starting to bother you. You get exposed to it, or you're pumping gas, and you get dizzy. That's oral intolerance you're smelling something and it's breaking down well that's even beyond immune intolerance your are oral intolerance and immune intolerance can um, usually it's oral first and immune but now you're you're everything that you get in, exposed to is now causing a problem or man every time i smell that perfume or cologne or um i, I used to use this shampoo and now i'm reacting to it this that's further on down the line but this is where we start in those cases with well let's eliminate this and this and then we might need to take a look at this these things called food sensitivities and here's why so anything that you're allergic to it's inflammatory anything that's inflammatory is a a root cause for disease now do i start there and should any doctor really start there no not unless somebody like is down to three feet three foods and that's all they can possibly eat was well that's going to screw up through what's called their microbiome diversity which means they're never going to be able to help get this into remission and feel better so we have to figure out something. What can you eat? Um, and there are cases that come in like that that I have to do food sensitivities a lot sooner than other. Or when we're checking to see if their gut is breaking apart with what's called a Cyrus 14, and see everything looks great high five except for their salivary IgA, which tells me that the cause and the driving force of their immune issues is going to be food sensitivities as opposed to environmental sen- sensitivities, as opposed to heavy metals or mercury, as opposed to an infection. Um, there are there are many options that you can have a leaky gut, but sometimes it's just food allergies that's running it, so we go take a look at it. Now, let me give you some breakdown as to when there are different conditions or something that comes along. So there's something called dysbiosis, meaning that you don't have the normal microbiota or flora in your gut. The virus, bacteria, fungi, and parasites that all are supposed to live in your gut. Yes, all of them are beneficial. Now you can have some that get out of whack or some that, that were beneficial, but now they're in too high. That's called dysbiosis. So when you take an antibiotic, it kills the bad stuff and it kills your good stuff. So now you have a dysbiosis, but you have these freeloaders in there that are called yeast, and they are like college students. They get free room and board, and they got alcohol coming into them, which is food, and they have a party, and they invite more of their friends, and they grow fastly, and then all of a sudden now you have yeast that are running and breaking down your hormones and telling you what to eat. That's when you get sugar cravings and. Um, desires for things that you didn't used to eat before is when the yeast have overgrowth and then you have all the side effects of going there. So that's what's called dysbiosis. Now you cannot overcome dysbiosis by just taking a probiotic. Sorry, no ifs or buts. You have to kill the yeast because it's sort of like going to out shopping on December 24th. Everybody's waiting procrastinated to the last minute. You go to the shopping mall and there's no place to park. Well, that's the way your gut is. It's full of yeast. So you have to do something, uh, whether it's a yeast free diet, um, it takes something that, that does help eliminate yeast, and that's why we have GI immune balance. It goes and kills everything that's not in balance, and then we can consider one of the probiotics. And we have four different times in of the office. We have one that's really for children under the age of 12, and uh, prepubescent is what that is. Um, we have one that's for adults, or anybody that's over 12 would consider that technically adult, but that's that's how the, you know, once you start menarche or you start puberty, or is my. Uh, Professor at KU Medical Center called it puberty, and me being 25 years old still giggled every time she said it, and I probably still do in the back of my mind now. I don't know why she said it, but she said it, and I just can't handle it. Anyway, um, your microbiome changes. You have a change in hormones, and so because women have such a massive fluctuation of hormones as they're going through there to make their body's ready for a baby and most young women since 1995 when snack wells came out and said let's take all the fat out of food but we'll put a whole bunch of sugar in it you're going to expose to all these um, uh, too much sugar and so they have massive surges of insulin which then changes their progesterone estrogen and testosterone which then enhances their ability to have autoimmune conditions now men still have that too but it's like five to one Um, and it's getting closer for men. So that doesn't mean you, you can eat that junk too, because it was like 12 to one and it's getting closer and closer. So that's, that's the first part of why we want to take a look at food sensitivities. Well, food sensitivities can also decrease your acid in your stomach and then you don't break food down. And so if you don't break food down, you're going to feed the yeast. Uh, so then you can get into things called ulcers. And so, an ulcer is we have to decrease acid foods. We have to decrease alcohol and caffeine. We have to increase fiber and get colorful colorful fruits and vegetables. But what if you have a food sensitive to, sensitivity to that? It's going to perpetuate your gastric ulcer. So we need to know what you can eat. And then there are people who don't have a gallbladder or have a sluggish gallbladder. And so the, the smart thing for them to do is they just stop eating fried foods. Um, and they need to have foods that don't Stimulate their insulin because that's in your pancreas. While your pancreas is, for the most part, supposed to help you break down carbohydrates, it does help you break down fats too. And so they also avoid fats. But everything in your body requires fat. Your immune system requires fat. Your nervous system requires fat. Your brain requires fat. So just eliminating fat altogether, fat free, makes your you um, brain fog and, and 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 not very sharp. And it can it can start to have some cognitive issues. And and the last thing anybody really wants to hear is how many call them stupid. But when you don't eat fats, you don't really have a choice but to be that way because you're inefficient on how you can think. It doesn't mean you're stupid. It just means you're inefficient how you can do, but your appearance and how you, you react is that way. And so with gallbladder function, people, we have to increase fiber. Well, what foods have fiber and how can we do that? And the other thing that helps the gallbladder actually contract is something called coffee. And it's the caffeine and dark coffee and didn't say eat your latte with all the sugar and everything else in it, but that's a good way. So this is kind of how gastrointestinal disorders and why we're looking at food sensitivities and how it can go out and create an immune system or an autoimmune issue go along, but this is the progression. Dysbiosis first, then stomach issues first, which could be an ulcer. It could just be you have a lack of enzymatic issues. Now, as we get older, we slow down in our body but guess what so does our digestion so sometimes we have to give a digestive aid whether it's helping you make saliva or helping you make stomach acid or helping you make bile for the gallbladder or helping the pancreas work but if all these don't work above this is how you get something called intestinal permeability otherwise known as a leaky gut and once you have that gluten-free dairy free is is like extremely important and then processed foods We'll just hammer this away because of the above processed foods are high in fats and sugar and everything else that will affect gallbladder and stomach and just perpetually keep the dysbiosis and everything else going so it's kind of top down at how it goes then when you have a leaky gut issue that's when we can get into again like those transglutaminase where you start making autoimmune um antibodies and then if it binds to the tissue and the tissue starts to destroy itself, now you have autoimmunity. And so the people that are there have to be on an autoimmune paleo diet, which is gluten-free, dairy-free, nightshade-free, GMO-free, lectin-free. Um, and if it's autoimmune paleo, you're also going to be nut-free. Um, because, it, it, because of the way it is, it, it has it hasn't look like it's not like diverticulosis or diverticulitis. And so they, they break down and have inflammation within their small intestine. Uh, that doesn't mean you have either or, but there's a test that would allow you to find out if that's the case of what's going on. So we, we don't want you to be autoimmune, but if you are, this is why the process goes through there. So again, autoimmune patients, taking a uh, enzyme isn't going to work. Taking a uh, just a leaky gut thing isn't going to work. Uh, taking a gallbladder thing isn't going to work. A pancreas thing isn't going to work because you are down below. So you have to go dampen the immune system with that. You have to eat that way. And then you kind of work your way backwards to get to there. So again, probiotics are important, but they're like the last thing to use. Uh, After autoimmunity, when people get autoimmune, they start becoming keenly aware of their environment. I pumped gas and now I itch or have a brain fog. I put on makeup or cologne. Uh, When I go and I smell this smell, I put this on my skin and now I react. That's a loss of oral intolerance. And so how we have to help these people is what's called a microbiome mashup when we have to have diverse fiber sources. And this is where we have GI immune, and that has a huge source of fiber that goes through there. This is more than this, your Metamucil. I haven't decided how to write an article against it. They have a really good idea, and they have, I even watched a, uh, I, I, I sat through the entire commercial with Metamucil, a diverse source of fiber, and it helps to reduce cholesterol, and helps to reduce plaque, and helps to do this, and I'm like, well, yes, fiber does that, but there are much better sources of fiber. Um, it, it's sort of like the difference between grass fed beef, fully finished, versus grass finished beef, which means they ate all the junk before they got there, or they were uh, grass fed beef can also be they fed them for, let's say, we'll just give it a 12 month year. Uh, the cowling lived 12 months, we know it's different than that. I'm just making it easy. And for the first 11 months, they're grass-fed, but they weren't grass-finished. You need to grass-fed, grass-finished. Or you just have the the callous-fed corn the entire time, which would be nuts and a very expensive, very expensive, but very marbleized um, corn-fed cattle that would go out there. So that's a different form. So think of Metamucil or something that's over-the-counter like that is kind of the beef that was corn-fed. Maybe it's better than than nothing, I, I guess you could have fiber from a candy bar uh, or a granola bar. So maybe that's it. But metamucil or something in that category is your next phase up. So it might've been, it got grass every now and then, but then there, there's a higher source of it. So that's where we go and you have to actually take vegetables and chop them up. And, and that's where you get to reset that. And then some people get even further than that when they come what's called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, literally when they uh, bacteria from the large intestine that should not be there is hanging out in the small intestine, so everything they eat, they they, they bloat. Now, just because you bloat doesn't mean you have SIBO. Um, SIBO is not only a gut issue, it becomes a neurological condition. I've only seen that a couple times in the office, but we actually do have a product for that um, to help with their um, product. So most of the time, these individuals end up with a particular food that's called FODMAPS. It's low-fermented oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and... Um, polyols and so really there's not a whole lot of food that comes along so as SIBO progresses you get this brain gut axis because it's in the gut and the gut is the second brain to the body everything that goes in there tells hey I've got protein coming in let's start building muscle let's start I've got fat coming in let's make sure it goes to the brain and let's make sure we're going to put some over here to save it for energy Um, that's really what the brain-gut axis does. But when you get past dysbiosis and um, peptic issues, whether it's ulcers or lack of enzymes and gallbladder dysfunctions and pancreatic dysfunctions and leaky gut and autoimmune and of self-tolerance and SIBO, you get into a brain-gut axis compromise. And the nervous system that runs your digestive system is called the enteric nervous system. Now it's compromised. And so these people get to do everything. Um, you are beyond autoimmune paleo this time because you're already on a FODMAP. So now you have to add ketogenic portion to it and be as close as you can to FODMAPs with intermittent fasting, and that's how you back it off. So when we're talking about food sensitivities, I want you to have food sensitivity testing before you ever get beyond there because it just goes on and on and on and on. And... I want you to understand the difference between food sensitivity and food allergy and why there's a, a very important reason when you do run a food allergy test. There's there's just there's just a difference in the process. And so when we run them, we want to run an IgG and an IgA. And in our office, depending on what you want, it could be 96 food panels, it could be uh, 180 food sensitivities. It, it all depends on your case. Now, my favorite is because it's the gold standard out there. And again, Cyrix is the gold standard in all testing. Um, and they run it out of, um, it, it's out of your bloodstream. So we are actually running a venous blood draw. That gets spun down and sent out and goes to the lab. And then we get, um, you know, 20 pages of, of results that come through that. And a lot of times what they do, why we like Cyrix so much is that I have been notorious for firing companies that aren't following science. I'm not afraid to do that. So um, I can't tell you if if you haven't heard or noticed before, following the science is a pet peeve of mine. It just makes me want to pick my head and pound it against the wall because it's literally like somebody's lying to my face. <laughs> uh, you know, if you've ever had children and you said, who ate that cookie? And there's one with cookie all over their face and said, it wasn't me. Uh, when somebody's telling me to follow the science or what? when you turn on the news and see that I'm just... It's, it's the kid with a cookie on their face. Um, give me a break. You don't know what you're talking about. So when it comes to following the science and food sensitivity testing versus food allergy testing, because the allergy testing is quite relevant and very limited on food allergy testing because it's really the highlights of the people that have anaphylaxis and there's only so many foods there. But the food sensitivities is much more comprehensive. Now, I've never had anybody walk into my office and go, you know, my favorite thing to eat Is raw chicken or raw turkey or raw veal. I mean, sure, there's somebody that eats. Uh, It's fine. We're talking like off the hoof. Um, And so there's only one company that we have uh, that doesn't test just raw meat. And so if all you ever ate is raw meat and you never cooked a thing, then you can probably use all the other companies. And the reason we use Cyrix is because they actually use it cooked. Uh, I don't eat raw chicken. I'll cook it so i want to see a cooked chicken i want to see do you have an igg or an iga to cook chicken um i don't really care about your raw chicken so that's why we fire it. so that's why the difference like if you run a let's say a 150 200 food panel and they're only going to do raw food but they don't tell you that unless you call them and, and find out or your doctor calls them and finds out and again your doctor usually doesn't know um i've been in this functional medicine world for almost two decades and very few doctors that I've come across. That's one of the very first questions I ask them about: What do you treat in your office? And what do you do? How do you approach it? And hey, wh- what companies do you use for food sensitivities? Okay, hey, have you ever called your your company and asked them how they approach that? Is it cytotoxic? Is it? Are we looking at that? Or if somebody's ever done a finger prick and looked at it under a microscope, that's cytotoxic. I mean, that we could do it ten times in a row, and we're going to get ten different answers. That is not science. That's 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 BS. Um, somebody pulling your chain, and they don't they don't understand, and that's. That's just it. I'm not mad at the doctors uh, because nobody was ever nobody ever told them how to test. That's why I went to school and how to test. It makes sense, Um, but nobody's ever also told them that you need to when you're dealing with a nutrition company. How do they make their products? How do they test them? How do we know what's in it? Um, How are you going to guarantee that this is going to work? That's a good thing to, to know from, from a standpoint. And that's what we use it in our office. So when you have food sensitivities or leaky leaking us, when we have a GI restore on our website to do that, absolutely. We know how that's going to go and work. When we're looking at whether it's turmeric or resveratrol to get into the body to help somebody, we have studies from that company that show that it works better than anything that we can find out there. Or if it doesn't, it's like half the price of the better thing that's out there because these things are not cheap. And, and so... That's what we look at. So when we're looking at food sensitivities, those are those are the big things we look at. What about glutathione? Can it get past the stomach? Uh, will it break down? How about your vitamin D? These are all things that we use when we have food sensitivities. And maybe you just need something to help the allergen, the inflammatory side of it. So we might use a seasonal support, which has it in there. We might use an N-acetylcysteine or NAC. Um, to help with those, or maybe you just need liver support or magnesium to help it go on, or maybe you have food allergies because you're constipated, so there's motility. I'm just throwing things that we use clinically in our office, and they're on our website at choosenewleaf.com to be able to help people with those conditions. But this is where, uh, and, and the reason, one of the main reasons for these podcasts is that there are a lot of doctors that are out there that can help, but there's also a lot of doctors that hurt. And it's not because they have intention, it's because they don't know. And I want you to be able to articulate. So it's okay to ask them, hey, how about this, and where did you get this, and is that the best test for me? And maybe they don't know, and if they care to know, they'll figure it out, and they'll they'll ask, and, and they'll be able to help you. So if you can't come see us, got it, no problem. But if you do, that's what we do in our office to make sure that our stuff is is the top end. We want the best product. We want the best test. So we know exactly what to do for you. So IgG and IgA, great for food sensitivities, not great for food allergies. Food allergies is IgE. And so when what we know with these food sensitivity testing is that you can test somebody for tomato and wheat and, let's say, dairy. And they might be negative for all of them. And that would end that particular company's testing. Great. Well, guess what? What if I mix them together? We'll call it a casserole. How about this? We'll put some pepperoni on top of it and we'll call it a pizza. Anybody testing you for pizza? Now, the combination that goes together and gets swirled together because, you know, you put something in your mouth, you chew them up and you swallow them. Uh, You don't usually eat one piece of lettuce off of your, oh, wait, there's a piece of carrot on there. I'm only going to eat that individually as if I'm an infant. No, you you take a salad and you put it on in your mouth, chew it up, swallow it that's where CyberX testing comes in because you can actually have somebody allergic to pizza, but not allergic to tomato or oregano or garlic. Uh, Isn't that frustrating? So that's where uh, those come in. Or they might combine, well, it seems like some people react, uh, the 50% of people react just as, as bad to the raw stuff as they do to the cooked stuff. So there's a difference in raw versus cooked. And when it comes to eggs, like the most antigenic, meaning the most potential for an um, a sensitivity is going to be cooked, like a, a, a hard-boiled egg. If you had a raw egg, so for instance, the amount of what's called binding sites, they're called antigens, that is on a raw egg, let's say it's like 20. And then you fry the egg, and it becomes like 80. And then you boil it, hard-boil it, and it becomes like 200 it's like 10 to 1, the more inflammatory it has. So if somebody has a reaction to eggs, you always have to ask, what kind of eggs are you eating? But Cyrex allows, when they run through those, they have the research that supports it that says, okay, we're going to run all different types of those eggs for one, or egg yolk versus egg um, white. But for this, let's say it's bok choy. I like that everybody eats bok choy or watermelon, uh, or you're not going to cook watermelon. So let's do uh, spinach. So in their research, they might have found that it's fifty fifty, so they have to run the raw and the cooked. Or they found that really like less than zero point zero one percent of the population has an issue with raw spinach, but Quite a few of them have it, and it's a, a popular food versus a bok choy, so they'll run just the cooked version. So they they do follow the science and tell us exactly what's the most important test to have, and we have those in our office. Now, for kids who don't really want a venipuncture or adults who don't really want to have their arm stick, there is a finger prick test that allows us to check IgG and IgA. It's just a little less um, comprehensive than the Cyrex test. Um it's less costly. That's okay. So if there's a budget issue, that's at least a good starting point. We can get that from there. All right. I know you have a lot of podcasts you can listen to. I appreciate you listening to ours. If you love it, if you like it, please like it. Let others know about it. If you'd like to know more about our office, go to choosenewleaf.com. If if you're interested in the product that we talked about today, go to, again, choosenewleaf.com, but go to shop and they'll be underneath there with the description to make sure that you're on the right one. If you ever have any questions, you can always email directly from our website to our office. Uh, I'm Dr. Tritz with New Leaf Health. Great health does not have to be a Mission Impossible.